You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Brother, you know, I say to Dave to his face that he is so committed, he is not even foursquare, he is five square. Uh, we don't know what that means yet, but we do know he's committed. Well, God bless you, everybody, and it's great to be with you this morning. And we are going to be opening the Word of God to the book of Judges, chapter 2, this morning. And before we do that real quick, let's bow our heads in prayer and let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you've called us into your family, that you have called us to worship you. But also, even as we sang this morning about your throne I'm reminded of the psalm that says that righteousness and truth are the foundations of your throne. And so we come together, Lord Jesus, as a community of believers to do what Christians have done since the very birth of the church. And that is to communally sit and hear and listen and ponder what you're speaking to your people through the word of God. So we open up our hearts, we open up our minds, we ask that your spirit would guide our thoughts and would bring and reward and bless every person, whether they're online or whether they're here, just that they would be blessed and would come away with a sense of you speaking into their hearts. And we ask all these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. So now, open up your Bibles, and uh, we are going to be in... Uh, Judges, and we're going to be reading through this morning uh, Judges 2, 11 through 3, 6. But let me just say a couple things before we, we open up the passage, one of which is this. You know, if you've ever read the book of Judges before, you know that it is not exactly loaded with a lot of great devotional material. I mean, it's not something that is super, super uplifting. As a matter of fact, the whole point of the book is it is about a great spiritual failure. And so when we look at this book, we're looking really at the value in it almost being a post-mortem of failure. Have you ever learned from your failures? Sometimes those are the best lessons that we have in our life, the ones that, you know, success doesn't teach us anything except being happy in the moment with how successful and how wonderful we were. But failure oftentimes gets right down to the rock bottom, gets us down to our core. And so that's the value of this. And so as we think about this, I want to focus our minds for a moment on what the plan is, okay? Because there was a plan, and the plan didn't exactly work out as planned. So what's the plan? This goes back, friends, to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, and verses 1 through 3, which is the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is really the foundation of the unfolding of the word, the entire word, but is also the unfolding, if you will, of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. And what are those promises? Well, first of all, that God calls Abraham aside. Abraham is a pagan, and, and God calls him into faith for some inexplicable reason and it wasn't because Abraham was so great or so faithful, but God connected with him and he trusted God. And God said, I'm going to take from you one person 
and I'm going to make you a great nation. And he says, I will bless your name and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed or will be blessed. Well, of course, and he's talking about in Abraham and the seed of Abraham was that final descendant, Jesus Christ, who is a blessing to all peoples and all nations. But let me focus for a minute on nations. Nations require something very important. Nations require people. You must have people to be a nation. You can't be one person. You can't declare yourself as a nation. You need people. You need laws. You need to have a way of proceeding together communally. And then finally, you need to have land. Nations require land. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in essence, tell the story of God fulfilling that, of giving them people, laws, and then land as well. And they were being brought, of course, to the land that was promised to Abraham. This land, in many respects, is to be a new Eden. Not the Eden of human innocence, but of redeemed humanity. It was given to them as an inheritance. Adam and Eve did not have to work to plant Eden. God planted it for them. And they got this land planted for them by inheritance. It was productive and fruitful. We hear that the land was flowing with milk and honey. Interesting fact. Think about this, friends. Flowing with milk and honey. So its richness was in its agricultural abilities, right? And that God said, I promise you, I'm going to bring the rains. I'm going to make this land productive. And if you're disobedient, I'm going to turn off the rain. I'm going to turn off the water faucet. But this land is watered by me personally. And so God is engaged in producing the prosperity that they would experience in this land. Fascinating to me that God didn't say it's a land flowing with petroleum or gold. Because, you know, those things, that kind of prosperity is definitely riches, right? Of course, cars were not invented yet, so nobody knew what to do with oil. Uh, but be that as it may, the fact that it's not the kind of prosperity that produces indolence, is it? It's a kind of prosperity that requires that you do the gracious and godly thing of working and that God will bless you as you work. And so this was to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And it was also the people were to live under the direct rule of God. Now, the coming to the land happened in three phases, as we've been studying in these previous weeks. First of all, Moses. Moses was, had the direct connection to God, and he brought them out of slavery, so he brought them out of deliverance and prepared them to be the nation as the lawgiver. And he closely supervised you know, so Israel was being brought out of their, if you will, their toddlerhood, their childhood, and they were under the close supervision of God through Moses. And then we have Joshua, and Joshua takes us to the arrival and then the actual inheritance in the land. And once again, it is an apprenticeship, if you will, under Joshua. And then finally, the next part of the plan, which is where we get to in Judges, is the theocracy. With the passing of Joshua, no great human leader was raised up to lead Israel because Israel was to lead under the leadership of God himself. 
they had a framework for living under their law that encompassed both spiritual and daily affairs. The spiritual and national unity was maintained through their series of feasts and pilgrimages and festivals. And then the priesthood was to uh, interpret the law and the elders as well. And the national defense was to be handled at a tribal level. It's a brilliant plan and it's an anointed plan, but it went off the rails within a couple generations after Joshua. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. Can I just say that God's plans are perfect. And so God made the universe, if you will, in a way that it arcs towards the best possible outcome of all things. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing faulty with God's plan in any way. But from our human perspective, what do we see? But we see a mixture, don't we? of good and bad results. Why is that? Well, God has not failed and God's plan is not faulty. It's still solid. But we have a built-in tendency to leave out parts we don't like or add things in that we think might be better or improve upon things. Or we have that tendency to abandon God's plan altogether. The fall of man introduced the fall of not only our hearts, but also of our intellect and our will. So we have broken wanters and broken thinkers in addition to having a fallen heart. And you know, what? why do I bring that up? Well, you know, the spirit of our age is hostile towards God. And right now, especially, we live in a time where we're all encouraged to make every possible effort to find our happiness and our fulfillment completely apart from God. That's the air that we breathe, my friends. And it is a threat to you and it is a threat to me that this is this way because it's so easy to slide in to that groove, into that, into that rut, if you will, in our lives. And this was the type of thing that Israel was falling into as well. It's not a new problem. The very last line of Judges says, Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Does that remind you of any time that you're familiar with? Everybody did what's right in their own eyes. It's anarchy, and that is typically the bent of humanity. So we're in a series called The Gospel Story, where we're surveying the Old Testament and making its natural connections to Jesus Christ as the beginning and the fulfillment that is promised in the scriptures. And as a book, the message of Judges is definitely one of spiritual failure, but also God's mercy in the midst of failure. And the very essence of the book is in this passage, which I'd like us to read together, in Judges 2, 11 through 3, 6. And this should be understood, this particular passage should be understood as a summary of this 300-year period in Israel's history. So let's read it together. And then I'll come back and I'll make a few observations and applications to our discipleship today. Judges 2, beginning in verse 11. <coughs> and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. 
they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now, all this was really told, foretold by God in Deuteronomy. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about God speaking Deuteronomy. He said, he said, be careful because these things are going to happen, and they came to pass. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the day of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practice or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before so they could defend themselves in the future. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. There were for, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." Let me just break this down into three categories of thought this morning. First of all, what did Israel do? What was Israel's actions? Second of all, what is the Lord's heart? And then what actions did the, Lord's, the Lord take in this situation? Well, number one, what did they do? They forgot the God of their fathers, and they went after the false gods of their surroundings. Now, it's mentioned here about the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Uh, and, and it's described as they went whoring after them. Now, why would that be? Well, the name Baal means Lord, or it could also mean husband 
as well. And the Baal was the provider. It was a god of agriculture. It was a god of prosperity. These were usually localized gods, so there would be Baal slash whatever for the locality of, of the tribe that was living in Canaan as these were worshipped. And Baal was worshipped throughout the entire pagan Mediterranean world. And so think of them as my husband, my provider. And then, of course, there was the, uh, the Ashtaroth as well. And Ashtaroth is a, is a goddess. Uh, we know it in the Western world as Venus, okay, the goddess of love. You've ever heard of, of uh, you know, there's that song, I'm your Venus or whatever. Okay, goddess of love. Once again, what's the goddess of love all about? Not only Baal for got you covered on, for, uh, on your prosperity, but then uh, Ashtaroth or Astarte has you covered now in your fertility. So you'll be able to have lots of babies and, and be able to work your land and, and things will go well for you. And this is a practice. It was uh, 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 the goddess of love was uh, worshipped by prostitution. So once again, connecting this idea with they went whoring after other gods. And this was alive and well even in the Christian era. This was not just something in ancient time. There are verses in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians where Paul actually rebukes the Corinthians for joining this terrible habit of using temple prostitutes. So interesting flip on spiritual reality, and that is this kind of idolatry. You know, the Lord tells us to seek him first and seek his kingdom and that our needs and our material blessings will come as a result of that. But you see the flip here is I'm going, God calls us to have a love relationship with him, to love him, to be concerned with him, to worship him, to come after him and to seek to conform to him. And in as a tangential part of that, that the Lord will take care of us and we will experience his benediction and his blessing upon our lives. And yet this flips it completely over. Instead, it is I'm completely focused on what are the goodies that I'm going to get from my God. So, you know, it's a transactional relationship, which is not very loving. I mean, you know, when you maybe if you're married here and you first met your husband or your, your wife, you know, what would you say if they said, you know, I don't really love you, but man, I love all the privileges and the things that you buy for me. And that's what I why I love you. Now, doesn't that make you feel cuddly inside in your heart? You know, of course it doesn't. It's a completely transactional thing. But that's the flip of, of what idolatry actually does. So in answering the question, why did God use this word whoring? It was because God looks at the relationship between him and Israel in terms of a marriage covenant. And so going after another husband is the same thing as going after another husband. Uh, you know, it's a breaking, it's a shattering of that covenant relationship. And so you can see that they were looking for other husbands, other people to care for them. What else did they do? Well, they would cry and they would groan when they experienced God's chastisements, which should be a normal, normal reaction. If you're being, you remember this when you were a kid, what did you do when you were chastised by your parent? You groaned. Uh, you know, that would be a natural thing for coming under the discipline of the Lord. They would also obey temporarily whenever God provided them with a judge who we should think of a judge as a prophet slash deliverer. 
And then they would repent of their repentance and turn back to the false gods when the judge's lifespan was complete. You know, because of the fall, we are really more bent towards anarchy than we are on discipline in ourselves. The Holy Spirit interrupts that. The Holy Spirit definitely interrupts that bent in our life. You know, if you belong to him and you have a transformed heart, the Holy Spirit does that, but we have to interact with that. That's why we keep breaking rules. That's why we, you know, we don't all keep, we don't, we don't keep righteousness perfectly in our lives. Now, I know some of you are looking, oh, you know, Pastor Chris, I don't, I don't do all that. Well, that's because maybe you're just too tired to sin today, okay? Because honestly, honestly, that bend is within us. But we have that ability to interact with the Holy Spirit, and that makes all the difference in the world for sure. But that rut is cut very deep in our lives. You know, I was looking up, uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I was looking up, what does it cost America today to enforce the law? And what I mean by that is to have police, but then also to have a court system so people get a fair trial, and then also the cost of incarceration. The current cost for that in our country today is $300 billion, which I think, wow, that's a lot of money. And I think, well, we give away trillions now. How much, you know, it's not really that big a deal. Point being, though, is that we still, we spend all this money on enforcing that law, and it's because... We have to. Otherwise, we would break into complete chaos. I would imagine if I were to preach this sermon 10 years from now, I would be able to tell you the statistic would be a trillion dollars a year on law enforcement, and we still wouldn't be any better off, would we, at all? Um, now, I know I'm speaking in extremes. Most of us here are not criminally minded, but you can see that this is a problem we continually have to deal with the rut and the desire just to go our own way. What else did Israel do? Well, last of all, and I think the big one is, uh, they would intermarry with those that they were to drive out. They, they were supposed to come in and they were supposed to be conquerors of Canaan, and yet Canaan conquered them. They became the big compromisers instead of conquerors there. I hear the words of James the Apostle, who says in James 4.4, 4, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Some very strong words there, if you think about it, and yet that's what they were doing, was making friendship with the world. Well, what's the Lord's heart in this whole thing? It says, the Lord was provoked to anger, the anger of the Lord was kindled. The Lord was against them for harm. Now, the human experience of anger is often that of rage and fury, of contempt, of frustration, vindictiveness. Those are all emotions, and you might not want to question me too deeply how I came up with that catalog. Uh, yeah, but, you know, that is our human our human experience of anger. And you know, there are many times when our anger is actually rightfully noble and rightfully justified, but that is what representative about, what, 1% of the times when you and I are angry? Usually it's about something that is a selfish desire or feeling 
my life is being blocked in some way, in some, in some thing that I'm really wanting to happen, and we get frustrated with other people. But that's the human experience. That's why scripture says the anger of God does not accomplish the righteousness, or the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Everyone else tells us that we shouldn't take action and we shouldn't make decisions when we're angry. So we all know that this is not a constructive thing. But when we hear that God's heart is angry, I want you to have a different understanding of this. This is what theologians say about about God's heart, and that is that he is impassive. And what that means, it's a very fancy way of saying that God doesn't change or react to external circumstances. Does God experience emotions? Yes, but they're not disordered like ours are so frequently. And he's utterly blessed within himself and is oriented always towards true love. This would mean that his anger, when it is pointed at, at us for our sin, is still going to be doing what's just, what's going to be constructive, what's going to be restorative to the recipients of that anger. Now, how often do we think about that? Am I being just? Am I trying to be restorative? Am I trying to be constructive? Oftentimes, we just go into a fury instead of any of those things. What we need to remember is that you and I have that wonderful capacity to have other people ruin our day, and we have that capacity as well to ruin other people's day. But none of us have the capacity to ruin God's day because God is happy and God is blessed within himself. And we're not going to make him angry in the same way that we make each other angry. That's the Lord's heart, though, that it was aroused to anger against, against his people. What did the Lord do? Well, he, the Bible says that, Judges says that he gave them over to plunderers. They went after the bales of prosperity, and their prosperity was robbed from them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies. They were to be conquerors, and yet they were conquered by the influence of paganism, and they were rendered unable to conquer militarily. And God said that they would be able to do that and drive them out. God had delivered them from slavery and now was allowing them to be delivered back into slavery. He was also moved by pity when Israel groaned to him about their, uh, their oppression and raised up deliverers. You know, God punishes and disciplines us for our sin, but that never excludes his grace and mercy to us in repentance. Psalm 89, I'd really encourage you to read that on your own, but Psalm 89 talks about this, that God will always be faithful to his covenant and forgive us even in the midst of his chastisements in our lives. Beautiful part of Psalm 89. Whom God loves... He disciplines because of his love. And we need never fear the discipline of the Lord. You know what we need to fear? We need to fear not being disciplined by the Lord. Because what does that statement say? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If we're not disciplined, what does that say? Not a very comfortable thing to talk about, is it? So this is more or less, if you will, what I've read to you and what we've gone through here is more or less just a summary of the entire book of Judges. Wash, rinse, and repeat. 
generation after generation becoming more and more faithless than the one before it. So having said all this, what is the connection between the book of Judges and the gospel story? What is the good news in all this? Well, let me just say and put this under two headings here. First of all, that we have an absolute need for a prophet deliverer to save us from our sin and lead us into the covenant blessings of God. We need someone to help us because we don't have that answer in ourselves. And I want us to turn to another scripture to talk about this. If you turn to the New Testament book of Galatians, I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You know, Israel's disobedience and failure is really also a mirror of our own failure. And the curse of the law is that it is God's just path, but we can't seem to keep it. But Jesus did, and he took our sin and our failure, that curse, he took that upon himself. And he made the cross the altar and sacrifice for our sin. But also, he really made the cross in Calvary the burial place of our sin forever. I want you to think about that. I think all of us have a past. Most of us here have a past. And I can't tell you how many times when I think about my own past that I cringe, I grieve, I tremble. And yet, that in Christ was buried at Calvary. That went in the tomb. There's a reason why Jesus was put into a tomb. is because the wages of sin is death. And he was buried. And so were your sins in him. And even as he's resurrected, we also have that new life. Is that exciting to you? It should be exciting to you. Because it is an invitation really to live free. And to live under no condemnation, but to have that liberty and that freedom and forgiveness. And you remember that feeling, if you've ever been guilty of something terrible, to be forgiven of it. And that release, don't lose that, because that is actually how we live in Jesus. You know what I've done? I've scrambled all my pages up. Did I do that or did the devil do that while I was talking? I kind of feel like it might be the former rather than the latter. So once again, 
I would just say and invite you, if this is new news to you, if this is news that comes as a comfort and relief, I would really invite you today to give your heart to Jesus Christ. He took your curse upon himself. But none of us, we all want the mercy of God, but we need to understand that we don't experience the mercy of God without the justice of God. And the justice of God was poured out on Christ that we could experience the mercy. So I'd invite you today, if you have not done that, to do business with the Lord and to say, Lord, I don't know all this means, but I want to belong to you and I want to experience your forgiveness and give my life to you. Do that if you have not done that already. But the second thing I think we can learn from this, moving on to my conclusion here would also be, what was this but a failure of 2 Corinthians 5.7? 2 Corinthians 5.7, Paul says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And the full context of this is that we make it our ambition to please God, whether we're in his presence or we're not in his presence. And this was what Israel was to do, was to walk by faith and not by sight. They had had the sight. They had had the Shekinah glory. They had had the miracles. They had crossed the Red Sea, these generations. They had all these signs. But God's intention was for that to not go on forever, but to trust in him and to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what we do today as Christians today. We walk by faith and not by sight. We learn to trust that voice of God, that voice of the Holy Spirit. We listen to the words of Christ as we read the word, as we hear it preached to us. And we walk and we trust in that. And that was what God's intention was for Israel. And they didn't live up to that. And that is what God's intention is for us. And we need to live up to that. And we can live up to that. We need to make it our ambition. Living by sight. No, we need to live by faith and not by sight. How do we do that? What was their mistake? Well, can I scare you for just a reasonable amount here? Just a reasonable amount, and that was the fact that um, it is really easy to get into the trajectory that the Israelites were, where they were concerned about their prosperity, concerned about living the good life, concerned about all this life. They looked at the now, and I'm not saying have no concern about the now, but we can lose the now or we can lose forever. We can lose, we can lose sight of forever and only be focusing here on the now. And that's the way of the world. What does Romans chapter one or 12 verses 1 and 2 tell us? Do not be tr uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the minds. And the idea is the conformation is the idea of being crammed into a mold and being shaped. And that is our default position. You are being and I'm being crammed into a mold constantly trying to press us into becoming this this person of the world where I can be happy apart from God. All I need is this, fill in the blank. I need to pursue that. No, we need our minds transformed, and that is transformed by the hearing and the living out of the word. Renewal, really, renewal is what J.I. Packer says is having a Christ-shaped conscience. It's the idea of saying, Lord, 
I believe your word and I want to live by this and I see that I have the freedom to do as much creative good as possible in all of my circumstances. How do you think, Lord, about this particular way? What should I do in this circumstance? It's moving along those lines of having a Christ-shaped conscience that then makes that difference of how we live our lives and whether or not we are going to be living as worldlings or we're going to be living as Christ's children. Renewal is definitely doing that. Can I just close with just a startling statistic that is actually only a few weeks old? And this kind of relates to where everything is today in the church and in our lives. Um, American Bible Society does a, a study every year on the state of Bible reading in America. And it's a study done uh, ostensibly on the church, but it, it looks at nationwide statistics. But one of the things that the American Bible Society, and just this came out like a couple weeks ago, one of the things that they noted in their statistics, and they said we had to go and calculate the numbers and recalculate them a few times because we just didn't believe it. But based on their wide longitudinal, longitudinal survey, they found that uh, 26 million Americans gave up reading their Bibles at all during the pandemic. But the more shocking statistic was the fact that nearly 13 million, which is equivalent in, of Christians of about 4%, 4% gave up reading their Bibles. Okay, people that are actually, a lot of people read the Bible once or twice a year, you know, at least Christmas and Easter, right? But uh, we're talking about people that were people that read their Bible every single day. It was part of their devotion, and they just gave it up during the pandemic. You know, does that sound like devotion is increasing in the church? Does that seem like hard times are pressing people into the Lord even further? It seems like people are pressing into other things during this time. And I just say that because it's like, you know, you guys are here today, and I believe that is a sign of your devotion. And I don't want to undermine that in any way, shape, or form. But just understand, it's so easy to fall into these traps where we need these things to conform and transform. We have forces conforming, but we need to have our minds and our hearts transformed. And that doesn't happen by osmosis. That doesn't happen because you inherit your faith. That happens because you live your faith. It becomes lived experience and becomes part of your life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But then we also have to translate that into being from hearers to doers of the word. And may you so do and avoid the mistake of Israel in the book of Judges. Let's bow our heads and pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message, not so much of encouragement, but of warning, but that's okay, because we know you warn your people against things that hurt us and harm us, and you do that for our good. And so help us to not walk away here going, hmm, that was something to think about, but rather to evaluate our own lives and ask ourselves, are we interacting? Are we working? Are we engaged in transformation of our lives? Are we taking those steps? Are we, are we coming to church? Are we fellowshipping with other believers? Are we reading your word? Are we 
thinking about and meditating on that. Are we engaged? Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us for your glory to be a community of faith who walks by faith and not by sight. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.